Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 17, No Bad Smell. What does it mean to be sick? What makes Jesus angry? Why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? Steve discusses those issues and more in this study on John chapter 11. sections of chapter 11, and if somebody, as usual, somebody with a loud voice could read uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 7, that would be terrific. Who wants to go for it? Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Super. Thanks, Cookie. Thank Mm -hmm. you. So... We're going to move uh, toward how we can concretely apply the passages that we're going to look at tonight. Um, we're not going to go every verse. Usually we do. We're going to just hit um, some different key uh, verses within this chapter. This miracle is the climax of John's seven signs or seven miracles. Remember, we had... Um, the, the first one was the water turned into wine, etc. So, um, this one, the, the, the raising up of Lazarus, foreshadows, of course, Jesus' own death and resurrection. This chapter, I think more than any other chapter, maybe, maybe except chapter 18, but this chapter profoundly reveals both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of overtones. As I keep saying week after week, John is very careful how he structures this. And, and if we're not careful, we could miss some of these. And right from the very beginning, the very first phrase. Now a man uh, was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. The word sick, the translation that Cookie read said ill, uh, uh, is asenes. And it means to be sick, to be feeble, but it also means to be weak, to be powerless, and it also means to be weak in means, i.e. poor and needy. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, and the word uh, asthenes can, uh, can imply a handicap. All right? Isn't that interesting? And now it gets even more interesting, because the name Bethany literally means the house of poor or the house of affliction. Mm-hmm. And Bethany was a place where the poor were received at almshouses, you know, like a poor house. And also the sick went to Bethany to receive care, including lepers. And uh, it was somewhat like a, a, a sanatorium. Mm-hmm. Now, listen to this. So it's a place of the poor. 
And remember in Matthew 26, when, when Mary pours out the perfume and the disciples get offended. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, 11, the poor you will have with you always. Right? A verse we, love, we know. But the context is he's saying it in Bethany. He's saying it in a place where the poor come to and gather. So we see in the Gospels that Jesus had been to Bethany many, many times, uh, almost certainly staying with the, this one family of, of perhaps his closest friends. It's interesting, none of them were his disciples, but they were his friends. Um, <coughs> excuse me, Matthew twenty one seventeen, 17, uh, Matthew 26, 6, Mark 11, 11 and 12, Luke 10, 38, that's the whole thing, the famous story with Martha working in the kitchen and Mary at his feet. Uh, it seems to be a very special place uh, for, for Jesus. Um, and their father was Simon the leper, again reinforcing what's going on here with Bethany. So it's a place of friendship and rest for Jesus. In fact, in the, the, the Passion Week, we see Bethany rises up more and more and more. We, we encounter Bethany. Verse 3. Lord, the one you love is sick. This is the first time in John's Gospel that we hear of Jesus loving an individual person. And then I say it again in verse 5. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Again, we're getting more and more into the humanity of Jesus. Um, it's also the first time in, in this passage that John uses the word agape and phileo. And um, phileo, or phileo, depending whether it's a noun or verb, is uh, about mutual friendship. It's a two-way friendship. Lazarus is the object of probably the most famous miracle, right? Um, and yet, apart from this episode, he is almost invisible in the Gospels. There's something hidden away about Lazarus. He just doesn't show up. There'll be a brief thing in the next chapter where, where the uh, authorities are, are threatened by his resurrection. Um, but he's, he's, he's this shadowy, almost invisible guy. And yet he is the brother of two fairly prominent people in the gospel story. And given what I just told you, not only about love, but about Bethany and about sick, which, um, you know, we give you a broader frame of reference for what that means. Hi. Um, could, could it imply, could John be implying something here? That, that Jesus comes and visits. This is a family he has relationship with. But he's coming to this house of affliction, this town of affliction and poverty. Could it be that he comes and visits and cares for an infirm man? Maybe even a handicapped man. This shadowy character of Lazarus. It, it's just a supposition. But it's, it's worthy of thinking about because again, John's so careful in his language. So clearly, 
as they appeal to him, the sisters are drawing upon a relationship that Jesus already has that's filled with tenderness and affection. Um, verses 6 and 7, they, they appeal to him, Lazarus, the one you love, is very sick. And then in verse 6 and 7, he loved that whole family. But what did he do? He waited for two more days. He allows them to suffer. He allows painful things to happen to people that he clearly loves. There's a balance here that needs an awful lot of discernment. I think we can, we can theologically fall off to either side of the rail here. I believe I've come to the conclusion um, a number of years ago that sickness and death are part of the brokenness of a fallen world that is under the influence of the powers. We've talked about the powers before. We'll talk a little bit later on those. I do believe that. I think sin, uh, rather sickness and death come from the powers, from the enemy. But I've got to come to terms with the reality that suffering, though I do not believe it's caused by God, is used by him to change and transform us. And here's the balance. I think we, the church can fall off on one side of it, be thy will, Lord, and we just pray a, a tame little prayer. But there's another side, a triumphalist, is this is what we deserve, this, this is our inheritance, this is how God always acts, he always heals. He doesn't always heal. It's a mystery, he doesn't always heal. Uh, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have people we prayed for, believing they would be healed, and they didn't get healed. But, I think that very sickness and disease doesn't come from God. It comes from the evil one. We'll look at this a little bit more later. So why did he wait for two days? I bet you we've all wondered that. Why did Jesus wait for two days? Well, now we're back again into the area of speculation. Because John never says this is why Jesus waited. But I think knowing the nature of his relationship with the Father, I think he was praying. I think he was waiting for the Father to specifically guide him. Remember earlier, his brothers said, well, why don't you go to Jerusalem to the festival? And he said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going. And then later he went. I think he got guidance from the Father. We're going to see, just before he, he calls out to the tomb that Lazarus is in, in verse 41, he's going to say, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I think he was not referring to just that statement, that short prayer. He was referring, I think, mm -hmm. to his two days of, of seeking the Lord. We're going to jump down to verse 17 to 27. Is there somebody with a good loud voice who could read 17 through 27, please? Steve, I have a comment on here from uh, Karen Fritzke. She says, Just a thought. According to Eastern Orthodox Church tradition, sometime after the resurrection of Christ, Lazarus was forced to flee Judea because of rumored plots on his life and came to Cyprus. There he was appointed by Paul and Barnabas as the first bishop of Kition, present-day Larnaca. He lived there for 30 more years, and on his death was buried there for the second and last time. Well... So, just a little 
That's an interesting thought, because I just was reading archaeology that claims they, in, in only in a 1920-something, claims they found his tomb in Bethany. But let's see, who knows? <laughs> that, that'll be a good question to ask the Lord. But thank you for that, Karen. And anybody else who's got questions or comments, do what, what Karen just did. So could somebody read 17 to 27, please? I am the resurrection and the life. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about (coughs) two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whether you ask God, uh, what you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection and the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Thanks, Dana. Okay, so we now know Jesus arrives, but Lazarus has been in the tomb, which, by the way, almost certainly was a cave, but was in the tomb for four days. And in that climate, that meant profound decay. It actually starts usually after two days. So as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. That's verse 20. It's interesting, as I read different commentators, there's so many interpretations of this. They, they either say Martha is impulsive, or Martha's full of faith, and Mary didn't have as much faith. There's all kinds of things. Um, we have no idea. I just want to make that clear. But we see once again, kind of a reflection of, of the story in Luke 10, right? Where, where Martha gets to work and Mary sits and listens. <coughs> Excuse me. Now this has been a fascinating exchange for years for me that Martha has with Jesus. He says, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask, Okay, so she says the right thing. The first thing is maybe even a little bit accusatory. But, uh, but uh, Jesus responds and says, your brother will rise again. And she says, well, I know he'll rise on the last day. Now, when she says, whatever, I know that whatever you ask for, that will happen. That's pretty a good example of a common type of faith in the church. She said the right thing. In a few minutes, we're going to see that there probably wasn't much substance to that, but she wanted to say the right thing. But this is what is fascinating to me. She's comfortable to look at the past. She says, you know, if you'd been here four days ago, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, he's going he's to rise up. He's going to live. Um, and uh, your brother will rise again. And, and, but what she does, she hears that, and she pushes it into the future. She doesn't say, yeah, he will. She says, oh, I know he will, 
on that on resurrection day, right? And <coughs> I think this is a classic example of what happens in the church. Um, I think that we either tend to be comfortable with the past. We, we get together and we will sometimes sitting over a cup of coffee, we'll get talking about the good old days, depending on what our tradition is. I used to have friends back in the 70s and the good old days were 1948 because that was the latter rain movement. And I'm with friends now, the good old days is uh, Toronto in the mid 90s because that's the Toronto blessing or Brownsville because that was their tradition. Or the other part of what the church does is they push things into the future. I know it's hard now, but there's going to be change. It's going to be better. Either eschatologically they say Jesus is coming soon, or there's going to be breakthrough in the future. We have so much trouble dealing with the tension of the already and the not yet of the present. And I just have always seen this exchange as a classic example of that. Um, if you live in the past or the future, theologically, you break that tension. But I don't think that tension is meant to be broken. So, Jesus invites her to look into the future. Your brother's going to rise again. But then in verse 25, I am the resurrection you're talking about. I am the future. Jesus has brought the future into the present, and he's about to demonstrate that truth. Um, this is probably the greatest of John's seven uh, I am's. We've talked about that. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, etc. This is, this is a profound one. We're going to get two more I am's in the, in the next few chapters. But this is huge, right? I am the resurrection and the life. I don't think I've ever been to a funeral um, that I have just been in the pew that I haven't heard this scripture read. At a funeral, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a this is an I am that that the unchurched know that people just know it has entered our, our culture. So, um, in verse thirty two to thirty six, now Mary comes and she says the very same thing as Martha. She says, "Lord, if if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died." But there's an incredibly different response from Jesus. Um, Is it because she said it in a different way? Is it because she was weeping? Uh, We don't know. But his response is two-part. Number one, he feels indignation or anger. Because the word, and it depends on the Bible you've got in front of you, that says uh, deeply moved or troubled means inward commotion. It, there's an anger that's going on in him rising up. And it seems to me there's nothing to be angry with Mary about. It seems to me that the object of Christ's anger is death itself, the foe of death. Um, I just thought I'd remind us of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that incredible resurrection chapter, um, where near the culmination of it, Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? I think it's this this battle. He's just angry at the powers that bring death. But the second response, and how much has been written about this, I, I, 
The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, right? Um, three times in the Gospels we see Jesus weep. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Um, the first time is when he is weeping over Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather you as a, as a hand gathers of chicks and you would not. The, that's Luke 19.41. It's also in Matthew. The second time is in the garden. He weeps in the garden. And the third time is here in Bethany. Now, <clears throat> so much has been written about why Jesus wept. Um, all we can do again is, is surmise. There's a lot of guessing going on for us in this passage tonight. But one thing I do see as he weeps, I can't, I can't think of a clearer picture of Jesus in his humanity. And we've been saying for weeks and weeks now, the word became flesh. This, this hypostasis is coming together of, of the divine and the human. And here we see his humanity. And, and there's a few reasons here. He is confronted personally by the pain of loss because Lazarus is somebody that he loved. Um, he's confronted at this moment with, with more of a cosmic pain, the pain of all humanity in the face of weakness and death. And this is personified as he's seeing the, the brokenness and the grief of Mary. Jesus wept. The Logos, the Son of God, the, the second person of the tr Trinity, weeps. God weeps with the world. I frankly think most of the world doesn't know that or believe that. They see a distant deistic God. He weeps with the world. And He is God. We've gone over that a, a number of times. He's not like God. He is God. God weeps. And of course... Prophetically, Isaiah 53, that incredible prophetic chapter about the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ, says he carries our sorrows. So it's interesting. Jesus knows that in a few minutes, Lazarus is going to be raised up. But he doesn't say, there, 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 that's all right. Watch what I'm about to do. There's nothing uh, triumphal in this. He experiences deeply and shares deeply in the pain and the sorrow of the people around him. He is the God who feels and he bears our grief and pain. And I think when most we need to know that is when we are grieving and in pain. He feels grief also for what he's about to face because the horrors of death and suffering are coming his way. He knows he knows that when, when he calls forth Lazarus, the thing has started now, and there's no turning back. And it accelerates very quickly. I mean, most commentators would say everything happens now within a week. Some say it's two weeks, but most say it's one week. So he knows that's the trigger for his own suffering and his own death. And he knows the pain of his own death, what it's going to cause for suffering for his mother and his family and his disciples and his friends. But he also knows that only through his sharing in the common fate of all humanity can the world be saved. Christ saves us as the Son of God, but he feels as the Son of Man. So then, verse 34, this is interesting. We're back to the theme of John's structures every, 
every verse so carefully. He says to Mary, where have you laid him? And Mary's going to say almost the very same thing in a week. When she is outside his tomb and she says, I don't know where they've laid him. That's not an accident. There's, there's, John is showing us this is a foreshadowing of what is yet to come. And then there's this interesting reversal. Jesus says, where have you laid him? And what does she say? Come and see. Where did we encounter come and see? Chapter 1. Other way around. Where are you going, Rabbi? Come and see. This is another, this echo of this, this reversal, puts Jesus in close, close relationship uh, with humanity. Does that make sense to you? There's a reason why he uses the very same phrases. And the tomb is the place of deepest sorrow and loss. And if we're willing to take Jesus honestly and transparently, we're willing to take Jesus honestly and transparently to that place of loss, then that's where we'll see resurrection. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. This week's episode is brought to you by our Small Business Loan Program. Here at Impact Nations, we are always trying to lead people to sustainable solutions. We have ongoing programs that provide some of the world's most vulnerable with both skills training and small business training. Once they've graduated, we encourage these students to go and chase their dreams. From fruit salads to notebooks to soap, these small businesses are helping young mothers provide for their families. But we could use your help. Would you consider giving to our small business loan program? Each interest-free loan we provide comes with the coaching and support needed to ensure that these businesses will succeed. To learn more, visit impactnations.com business. And now, back to the podcast. Let's talk about the section at the tomb. Could somebody loudly read verses 38 to 44, please? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid at the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that you, if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When, they had little, when, they had said, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen, and there was a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Super, thank you. When in, uh, in Matthew 9, when Jesus raises up Jairus' daughter, it's very private. He, he shoes everybody else away except three of his disciples. After the miracle happens, he says, don't tell anybody. Now he is standing up and it's incredibly public what he's doing. We see that, that John records that as he stands before that tomb, this same anger rises up in him again. And he says, roll the stone away. And Martha... I think just shows her humanity, but she, but it is in contrast with a few minutes ago, but Lord, whatever you say, I know that's going to happen. She says, but Lord, there'll be a bad smell. 
some of you might have the word stink in your uh, translation. There'll be a bad smell. So it makes me think that her belief that she expressed, uh, and I don't want to be hard on Martha, but, but it does strike me that it's somewhat a theoretical, a doctrinal faith, not an experiential faith. And again, she's, 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 she's not able to live in the present, the past or the future. What isn't in the story right here when they roll, when they roll the stone away? Anybody notice what isn't there? There's no bad smell. There's no bad smell. So, contrary to the natural process, Lazarus' body has not begun to decompose, though it's been there for four days. Could this be what Jesus was asking the Father to do on those two days when he was praying? Lord, keep him... Keep him whole. Father, keep him whole. So I call him forth again. Again, we don't know. But it's very interesting that there was no smell. And Jesus, imagine the stone opens and he goes, there's no smell. He knows the Father has heard him. And then he says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. As I said earlier, that's verse 41, as I said earlier, it's not just thank you that you're hearing me at this moment. You heard me. That's the tense. I think this goes right back to those two days of prayer. So he knows his prayer was heard because there's no smell. And then he says to her, I love this verse 40. I've loved this verse for years and years. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is one of the key verses in John. To see God's glory always requires what? You've got to believe. You've got to believe to see the glory of God. <clears throat> and this seventh sign is itself the glory of God. So then he says in verse 43 and 44, he says two things. Lazarus, come out. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, loose him and let him go. And we can just picture that. I bet we've all pictured that. He's coming out all wrapped up. And uh, so, Jesus, there's a few obvious applications. Jesus calls us back to life when we feel like we've died, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. And he sets us free from whatever binds us. The sin, a sin, the world, shame. It's interesting. He didn't tell Lazarus to untie himself. He said to others, you untie him. He's calling us to be co-laborers. He's calling us to bring freedom and life to other people. Now, could somebody read for me the plot to kill Jesus, 45 to 53? Everybody still awake? Yeah. All right. 45 to 53, who wants to read it? Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. 
One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, that year said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than a whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Thank you. So we've got a new character who famously enters the narrative, infamously, Caiaphas, right? Joseph Caiaphas was head priest that year. And this is uh, John's first mention of him. Uh, Caiaphas is, becomes the most prominent Jew in the Passion narrative. I mean, he's really the bad guy, isn't he? Notice what the, the Jewish leaders say. Um, we've got to do something with Jesus, because otherwise the Romans will remove both our place and our nation. Do you see that? The key motive for the Jewish attack on Jesus was this, that they would lose their place. First, they were concerned about their place. Secondly, the fate of, of Israel itself. Um, and of course, the Romans were behind an awful lot of the anxiety that was going on in Jerusalem. What they said was full of irony because Jesus, and, and, and because John has shown us so clearly, especially in just the previous chapter, that that the leaders do completely do not understand who Jesus is and what he's there to do. Um, he's a shepherd who cares for the sheep, not someone who calls them to take up arms. Right? So it's a very ironic statement for us. <clears throat> Caiaphas' cynical response is all about losing power, not about doctrinal purity. It's not about, oh... He is making himself to be equal with God. Oh, he is breaking the, the Mosaic law. Oh, none of that. We're going to lose our power. And so verse 50, John tells us that Caiaphas, uh, unawares, prophesied. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Well, Jesus was about to die, but it wasn't just for Israel, it was for the whole world. So this scene moves John's narrative very close to its climax. And the way he has structured his gospel, it's like steps going up. Um, I'm going to give you about five examples here. John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is first identified as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We talked about the, the, the sacrificial lamb many weeks ago. Chapter 2, Jesus speaks of his death and resurrection in the context of tearing down and rebuilding the temple. Chapter 3, he says the Son of Man will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Chapter 6, he says he'll give his flesh for the life of the world. Chapter 10, which we just covered, he is the shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. What John is showing us with his rising action is that the call on Jesus' life is on a collision course with the powers. And it is an inevitable, unavoidable collision that's about to happen. John's presenting us with a clash of life and death. It is the powers that rose up and killed Jesus. I'm really strong on that. 
Who killed Jesus? It wasn't the Father, it was the powers that rose up and killed Jesus. The powers are very powerful, very rich, very religious, and the institutions they represent and the spirits that operate within them. That's what we mean by the powers. And they're in, we talked about this several weeks ago, they're in our institutions, our political institutions, our financial institutions, our educational institutions, and they're all about holding on to power. Jesus was put to death by the structures of political, economic, and religious power. Demonic power. But they operate through those spheres. Now the powers know that death and the fear of death is their greatest weapon. This is why they plotted to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. We'll see in John 12. They decided to go after him too. The cross and resurrection is about Jesus breaking into and overpowering a death-filled world. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus led captivity captive. Famously in, in Ephesians 6.12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is what we're seeing, a clash, a spiritual clash. But it operates through religious and uh, socioeconomic and political spheres. So, it's a different kind of chapter, isn't it? We just covered, in, in just in terms of print, we covered twice as much as normally we would. But it's because I wanted to get at what, what can we learn from this? What's going on underneath this? <coughs> Remember, again I tell you, John writes on multiple levels. And we can read this chapter purely at a historical level and stop there. Or we can look at some of the symbolism that John presents us with in the way that he tells the story. You know, I was reading again this week. The, we've talked about the historical critical method. And it's amazing how many uh, evangelical commentators are saying, because I was, I was teaching on the Good Samaritan yesterday, saying you can't, there can't be any metaphor, there can't be any allegory, there, it's just got to be what it is. And that, as I've told you, only began after the Reformation and only really took hold after the Enlightenment. That, that for, for the first millennia, it was never understood that way and I would say was not taught or communicated that way because, because in that oral tradition of, of first century Palestine and for centuries before that, it being an oral tradition, it was built on metaphor and types and pictures. Almost got myself worked up over that, didn't I? Um, <coughs> so there's lessons in this story. It is more than just a story of Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Yes, it happened. But John put everything in there strategically. So what can we learn? Well, there's some things that are probably not very mysterious. Each one of us has got dead areas in our lives. Um... And we are caught in a culture, profoundly caught in a culture that is dominated by fear and shame. I watched last night a story on the news about the fashion world, um, it, just on the NBC News, and it, it, it hit me again. 
it is so entrenched in us, this fear of, of not keeping up, this fear of not belonging, this fear of not looking as good as the next person. We are in profound culture that is dominated. When you hear the word dominated, you think the powers by fear and shame. And Jesus calls us out of our tomb. He calls us into the light and he says, take away the stone. But we can be like Martha and say, no, no, no. Uh, It smells too bad. That that thing is too offensive to come into the light. It's too bad to be exposed. And Jesus calls us to be fully alive by responding to his voice. We can't stay in there and be alive. We've got to come out. You know, I think I've said to you before, what is denied cannot be healed. And... And to me, that this whole story speaks of that. And then there's a second thing that we need to look at. And there is no getting around it. Jesus waited and he let Lazarus die. And his sisters wept. And his, we, he's not in this story, but the father, Simon, I'm sure would have wept. And the family and the relatives were weeping. He let him die. And that's a hard truth in this story. So what do we get from this? Well, one, there can't be a resurrection without a death. Hmm. Now that I'm at this stage of my life, as I mentor um, men and women from a younger generation who, because they live in the first half of their life, we're just wired in the first half of our life. We, we want to progress. We want to achieve. We want to do well. And therefore, we feel failure very acutely in the first half of our life. And what I, what I try to share with them is, guess what? God doesn't waste anything. He uses absolutely everything in your life. Isn't it interesting? He loved them deeply, but he waited. Another thing we get from this is that simply, if he did that for them, then we need to learn this about Jesus, God the Son. He's willing to wait. He'll even wait until we think it's too late. He will wait until we experience death to dreams, even the promises that we've got. And then when we've really, it's over, it's too late, it's done. Then he steps in. Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than ours. They really are. I look back, and probably many of us can do the same thing. I look back over all these years now. And I look at things that I thought were a total disaster. Mm -hmm. And I realize, oh my word, you were using those. Another thing I think that we can get from this, and I hold on to this hard, he is always good. He is always good. Therefore, he works even the bad things for good. 
And this requires trust. Christina read yesterday when we were just having our morning quiet time, we both read Bible separately, but she said, oh, and she read Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. She didn't say it as fast as that. Um, <laughs> we live in a time where in the church, in, in too many ways, there's a, an implied gospel that is about my success and my happiness and my fulfillment. What is good for me? And it is so easy for this to turn Jesus, the second person of the triune God, to change the triune God himself into some kind of a Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Because that's what he's here for. My fulfillment, my Things going well in my life. Paul encountered, we would all agree, I think, Paul encountered the real Christ on the road to Damascus. And a verse that we often know the first half of is Philippians 3.10, that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But that isn't the, the whole verse. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. There it is again. No resurrection without death. So what's he saying here? He's saying, I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we love hanging around those things. And those are good things to hang around but we can't jump off the train when he says, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And I want to be like him in his death. What was he like in his death? I've spent quite a bit of time the last few years contemplating the cross. And this is what Paul says. So that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus said in Luke 9... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake shall find it. I've told you before, that is the single most repeated saying of Christ in all of the Gospels. To really follow Jesus, this story tells me that I have to learn to trust him even when it looks like he's ignoring me, like He's waited too long. He is the God who weeps with us. He is not far off ever. He he doesn't go away for a while, test and then come back. He is always right there. He is the God who is unwaveringly committed to transforming us into all that he has made us to be for all eternity. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. There's a formation going on in our lives that is for all eternity. He is the God who brings resurrection to us in ways and in times that we cannot expect. So it comes down to this from this story. There can be no resurrection without death. And that's... Tonight is... More supposition, 
more, what does it mean, metaphorically, but I believe that these are some of the things it means. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next week for a study on, you guessed it, John chapter 12. In the meantime, don't forget to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com. And please have a look at our small business loan program at impactnations.com slash business. Thanks and have a great week.